Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folta. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host. I'm a molecular biologist with an emphasis in genomics and thinking of ways that DNA tools can solve problems for people and especially as we apply them to agriculture. Now this week we are also talking about the exciting ways in which biotechnology has played a role in mitigating the effects of COVID-19. The vaccine is a miracle of biotechnology. It's literally injecting a piece of the virus, uh, genetic material, that allows your cells to produce an antibody to protect you against the virus if it comes along. So today we'll talk about COVID-19 and we'll talk about its current effects. We'll first speak with the Commissioner of Agriculture in the state of Florida, Nikki Freed. Now the Commissioner of Agriculture also has a role in consumer affairs and making sure that the state's consumers are happy and protected. She's been an outstanding, outspoken critic of the current policies which have been placed in place in the state. And we discuss the current issues in agriculture as well as COVID-19 in the state of Florida. In the second part of the podcast, we'll speak with Brady Holmer. Brady is a graduate student in cardiac physiology. He is outstanding in that he has a blog. He has a really great podcast and a great commitment to science communication. Brady talks about long covid Now, as critics of the COVID-19 vaccine will say, we don't know the long-term effects of this this, uh, vaccine. We also don't know the long effects of the COVID-19 infection itself. Now that it's been with us for 18 months, we're starting to see trends that are occurring in response to the actual infection of the virus, including uh, cognitive respiratory, pulmonary, cardiac effects, which are all due to this infection and last significantly past when the initial infection took place. It's important for us to consider as we look at the long-term therapeutic needs of the pandemic, as well as being aware of the long-term effects so that you can seek help if needed. So Nikki Freed and Brady Homer today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And here we go. We're speaking today with Nikki Freed. She's the 12th Commissioner of Agriculture in the state of Florida and has really been an amazing champion of science and evidence during this pandemic uh, in a place that has really suffered from a lack of science and evidence. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Commissioner. Uh, thank you so much for having me and and willingness to to continue spreading this message across our state. No, I appreciate it. But I, I before we get into the COVID and really the communications side of this, I really would like to talk about your position as the Commissioner of Agriculture, which you really come from 
really a background of, of as an attorney and, and not from necessarily from an agricultural background. So what, what, why did you want to take a position in the state as the commissioner of agriculture? Yeah, you know, during the campaign trail, I, I got asked that question, I think, on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, and what I tried to explain to people is, you know, this position is more than just agriculture. And of course, agriculture is so important in our state. It's our second largest economic driver, uh, 2 million jobs throughout the state, $137 billion economic impact. But it's the other part that really also intrigued me. It's the Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services. And so it's the consumer aspect in my 15 years of practicing law, constantly being a consumer advocate already throughout my entire career. Uh, whether it was my time at the public defender's office uh, to fighting the big banks during the foreclosure crisis, even when my time up in Tallahassee being a government consultant, I was fighting for, for the little guy, uh, was fighting for our children, the foster care system and our public education. So I've always been just a, an advocate and someone who's fought for those who haven't always had a seat at the table and saw this position as an opportunity to take uh, my life's work between my advocacy um, I did soup kitchens in high school, and so you have a component inside the department that also is regards to um, everything from food and nutrition programs to food in our school systems to protecting our consumers when it comes to concealed weapons to fair rides uh, to inspections at the gas station. And the other part that of the agriculture is that my background also comes from the expansion of cannabis in our state, both uh, medicinal uh, and hemp. And so really saw the, the Commissioner of Agriculture um, also looking at the fact that cannabis is going to be a, a green revolution for our state and the future of agriculture. And so really a, a melting of all the things that I've ever cared about in, in my life um, coming to one, one position. And, and so that's what kind of led me down the track of Commissioner of Agriculture. Well, that's really interesting. And now that you mentioned the consumer service side, it makes a lot of sense because that here in the state, for those who are listening nationally, it is the, the Florida Dep Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. But let's keep going on agriculture for a second. It's such an incredibly diverse state with so many different problems. And what was the biggest problem that came across your desk, or let's say the biggest surprise to you as someone from outside of agriculture when you entered this position? You know, I think that the biggest surprise that I had and, and the hardest thing for me to kind of get my head wrapped around, I, I'm somebody who likes to come to the table. Um, I don't care partisan politics. I, I like people coming together of all walks of life, of um, all different opinions and, and coming together and finding solutions. I'm a solutions driven individual. I don't I don't come to the table trying to push my own personal agenda. I try to surround myself with experts. And the biggest issue that is, is the hardest to really forge that kind of, you know, cooperative, you know, you know, relationship building is dealing with Lake Okeechobee, that I'd go into one meeting, you know, with, with, you know, people north of the lake, south of the lake, east, west of the lake, and you'd come into one meeting and everybody has a plan of how to make the lake better and how to deal with the discharges and how to deal with the Everglades. And you you walk out of that meeting like, yeah, that's the plan. And then you go into another meeting with incredibly intelligent individuals that have, you know, science behind them and experts, and they have a completely opposite plan. And you come out of that meeting like, yeah, that's the plan. And it's polar opposite. And so for somebody like me, who's trying to find, you know, middle ground and trying to do its best for our environment, while at the same time recognizing that, you know, we agriculture relies a lot on the water that comes from Lake Okeechobee, 
um, but also making sure that we're not draining our Everglades. It's a really complicated situation, and there doesn't seem to be consensus of how to deal with the lake. And so this has probably been the most frustrating aspect of my job is trying to to guide agriculture, guide my environmentalists, guide you know the people that live south of the lake on, on water consumption. And it's been a really difficult task. And you ask anybody who's involved in you know anything dealing with the lake, um, you, you'll find I think that the common the common theme is how complicated that this this conversation is. That's a really great answer because it really encapsulates the complexity of Florida agriculture and the fact that we grow food and have these incredible industries that that feed a nation during the winter that are really being encroached upon by populations that are coming in uh, that want a subdivision and a target. And it really makes these very difficult problems to solve. But what are some of the other big challenges to Florida agriculture today? Like, what are the things that really keep you up at night, um, you know, in terms of maybe some of the crop problems or something else that's happening? You know, it's something that I recognized on the campaign trail and then saw firsthand when I first became commissioner and something that we jumped on immediately was at that time uh, NAFTA, which is now the USMCA, so the United States-Mexico-Canada relationship, and and that deal. Because what's happened is Mexico is historically dumping products into our state, into our country. And what's happened is because they have less environmental standards, they pay their employees pennies on the dollar, um, and just different strategies of how to grow their crops. And so they're able to flood our markets with really cheap product. And unfortunately, it's the same growing season as ours. And so it's really hard for our farmers to compete. And we've seen over the last 10 years of of NAFTA, which is now USMCA, a huge, huge decline in the Florida marketplace um, of our Florida-grown products. And so we went up to Washington, D.C. I lobbied this issue. I fought really hard, got our congressional delegation to be united. Uh, Unfortunately, that fell apart when the president started to threaten our members of Congress. Uh, And so it was a very frustrating situation. And hearing the stories of our small growers, our our blueberry growers, our, you know, everything from our, our, you know, our, our peppers to our tomatoes, Uh, that you're just seeing such an impact. And so we have been spending a lot of time trying to say, okay, we can't solve that. We've tried, we we went up and got confirmation and commitments from the U.S. trade representatives, USTR, um, that they were going to hold field hearings. Unfortunately, COVID hit and they had to be more Zoom hearings and field hearings, and, and they didn't rule in our favor. And so it's been a very frustrating process. And so my team and I have been spending a lot of time trying to figure out other ways to really promote the Florida brand. And I I think the silver lining of of COVID last year, um, we saw a lot of our food being plowed under and spilled out milk. We're at the same exact time in our grocery stores. Uh, you saw fresh produce coming in from overseas while our farmers were hurting. And so the silver lining is that more and more people in our state were kind of waking up and saying, wait a second, this doesn't seem right. Why why are our farmers hurting and having to plow under products when the same exact products are filling our stores from, from other parts of the country? And so there's been what I've called the consumer conscious awakening, that the consumer is starting to pay more attention to where their food is coming from, wanting to buy more from their farmers markets and their local farmers. Uh, we stood up last year a, a commodities exchange where our farmers you know, inputted all of their products that were available onto an exchange where now consumers across the state were able to go right on and buy directly from the farmers. 
Um, but that's really what keeps me up at night is trying to figure out ways to really promote our Florida grown products, new markets that we can sell to, whether that's overseas or other parts of the country. Uh, and of course, giving our farmers an alternative crops uh, so that they don't have to necessarily sell their land um, and give it to developers, which once we know that that land is gone, it's gone forever. Well, we are so much on the same page. That's um, it's really the problem I see. I was the chairman of uh, horticultural sciences at University of Florida for almost six years and had so much opportunity to visit with the strawberry industry and with the tomato industry representatives. And over lunch one day, the tomato uh, representative said that it costs him more to buy the box than he can get for the product on the market due to the influx of cheap products coming over the border. Yep. And and it's it's such a sad story. And and what you're talking about from the FDAC side is is incredible. But how much do you think that communication about the locally grown crops and that this is something that's Florida grown from the family down I-75, how can we do that better? Yeah, I mean, certainly we have been asking for additional marketing dollars from the legislature consistently. Um, and under my term, as well as a previous commissioner, if we were able to get more resources from the legislature for our Freshman Florida program to be promoting it, we would do more. Um, and, and I mean, this is something that we fight for, and it's one of my biggest legislative priorities every single session is to get more money in the door so we can continue to come up with creative ideas. You know, and my team is thinking outside the box. You know, I visited New York uh, in 2019, and I saw that they've got the, these kind of pop-up uh, retail locations all over New York that has inside the store rotating products that are all New York-based. Everything from, you know, obviously the, the produce, but even things like soap and um, towels and other types of products really selling that New York brand. And so I've asked my team to kind of look at how we get one of those fresh from Florida stores. Um, and they could be in visitor centers across our state. They can be in conjunction with our, with our um, extension offices from the University of Florida, IFAS. And so unfortunately, then COVID hit. Um, and so some of that had to take a, a back burner for a while. But, you know, utilizing more of those marketing dollars and really pushing our retail stores. And that's what I spent a lot of time uh, during the pandemic is, is calling our big box stores, the Walmarts, the, the Kroger's, the Publix's, and really encouraging them to, to buy more local produce. And of course, promoting all of our farmers markets. You know, I know that every Saturday I know where I go uh, up here down the road from my house is an incredible Tallahassee farmers market that I visited. And, and so it's really trying to let people know what, what's available in their communities um, and get people to certainly start utilizing our their local farmers markets because every city and county has one. Uh, and so we have tried to also um, really create recreate our website, which is more user friendly, that has easy tools on site of the website or even on, on your phone to find where your local farmers market is and where your local produce is. Uh, and so again, it's marketing, getting that word out to the people and, and having podcasts like this, where I can certainly talk to more people across our state and our country and encourage people to buy fresh from Florida, Florida grown produce. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think people need to be reading their labels and they're so surprised to find out that in you know Wisconsin, you can get Florida strawberries during the winter. And it's so important and so critical to read those labels. One of the big problems is that some that you have American companies that are doing a lot of the growing in Mexico. And so they're American companies, which makes it a little bit hard to distinguish where the product really comes from. And, and so you have to read it carefully as a consumer. 
Uh, going forward, do you think that those kinds of efforts, uh, like, do you see any change in the uh, new NAFTA or is this something that really seems to benefit some industries and not others and probably isn't going to change? Yeah, then that was what was unfortunate, um, that when President Trump signed uh, the USMCA, it was the benefit of the car uh, industry and the, the auto industry and basically sold Florida out uh, and sold agriculture out. And, and not all of agriculture. There were some some wins across other parts of the country because I know that I was the only commissioner um, of agriculture across the country. We have these annual meetings uh, with all 50, all 50 of our commissioners, and I was the only one who voted against uh, supporting uh, the USMCA. So there definitely was other parts of agriculture across the country that saw benefits in the deal. But unfortunately, Florida will continue taking a hit uh, and not having a resolution uh, to the situation. Well, let's turn over to COVID-19, because this is an area that I really appreciate your presence in social media. Um, I also really try to educate the public and really try to educate others in the communication side of COVID-19 and how we can change hearts and minds. And I really appreciate your, your efforts. So what do you think of Florida's response during the pandemic? It's horrific. I, I mean, absolutely horrific. You know, we, you know, started last year where the governor you know, first was giving misinformation in February and March and not telling people what was going on. And then, you know, had just sporadic responses of opening and closing and more information and less information. We didn't know what was coming out of our hospitals. We didn't have information coming out of our nursing homes from uh, even from our, our prison system. And, and, and then unfortunately he went on, on a national stage and, 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 and said he declared victory Meanwhile, we, at that time, we had over 30,000 you know, lives that were lost, a lot of families and a lot of small businesses suffering. And, and that's not how you govern. You, you don't declare victory. You, you thank the people for doing what was right. And it was our local government and our local businesses that stepped up. And unfortunately, during this next wave, um, uh, it's malfeasance at what the governor is doing in our state. He's not doing anything. You know, he went out and pushed vaccines for seniors first, you know, and, and that was, you know, demographics he felt that he needed for his reelect. And then he stopped talking about vaccines. He stopped pushing it. He stopped talking about it, uh, making fun of people who were wearing a mask. And now, you know, we have, we are the epicenter of the entire country and, and possibly the entire world. And he's out fundraising across the country, um, hasn't tweeted about vaccines or wearing a mask in over 18 weeks. That is atrocious. Meanwhile, we've got our hospitals at capacity. We have, you know, no vaccine pop-up locations across our state. We're not seeing anything from the governor pushing these vaccines. He surrounds himself by anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers. And then he's taken away the power of our local school boards, taken away the power of our local county and city commissioners, and even of our businesses for doing what they believe is right for their own communities and for their own businesses. And, you know, that's why we're, we're, we have been standing up um, and having daily press conferences. He has refused to even give daily updates on our numbers, on our hospitalizations, um, has not broken it down by counties, isn't telling people what's happening um, from the 11-year-olds under who can't get vaccinated, and is making parents make really hard decisions. Do I send my child who can't be vaccinated into a school environment 
where others around us are not wearing masks. That's how, how do you ask a parent to do that or take them out of school? That is an impossible situation for so many of our parents to have to make. And we're seeing across the state school districts where thousands upon thousands of our kids are in quarantining and no direction from the Department of Education and the Commissioner of Education's office. How long do they have to be quarantined for? When can they come back? No virtual learning. So now these kids are sitting on their butts at home and can't even participate or watch what's happening in class. Um, so this is atrocious. And unfortunately, this governor, you know, sees that, you know, if he just kind of keeps going through this path that he's going to, you know, garner support from the very radical right that he's hoping to help him on, on the presidential run in 2024. Um, very irresponsible. And unfortunately, you have a lot, a lot of chaos in our state, a lot of hospitals that are saying we're out of supplies, we're out of beds, governor refuses to issue a state of emergency. Um, and so I don't really understand what he's doing. And I've given these two examples. Can you imagine on the first day of orientation into a preschool class or even, uh, you know, just an elementary school where parents come into a room and say, listen, my kid has a really, really severe peanut allergy. Asking the parents, can you please be conscious of the fact of not putting peanut, you know, ingredient foods into your kids' lunches, knowing the kids share lunch during, you know, during the day. And can you imagine another parent saying, screw that parent. I don't really care. I'm still going to send my kid with peanuts because my kid loves peanuts. That just wouldn't happen. And, and, then I, and I say this too, you know, when we live in Florida and we are so used to hurricanes coming through and every previous governor gets up, gets, you know, their, their emergency management, you know, outfit in and, they, and they're sitting in front of the emergency management centers with the, you know, all of the experts and meteorologists around them. And, and, and they do press conferences throughout the day, you know, telling people to the evacuation plan, where the strength of the hurricane is, where you can find information, where the, the you know, where all of the resources are. Can you imagine if we said, okay, there is a cat five coming to the state of Florida. Good luck. And that's it. <laughs> and, and that's what's happening here. You know, it's, it's just it's just not uh, not understandable that a governor of the third largest state in the nation has basically said, good luck. Well, this is a big problem because I know during hurricanes, you know, you see this incredible outpouring of support across the state for people who donate and who sacrifice, who spend their time, who come from one end of the state to the other to take care of each other. Yet that same spirit has really been abandoned in this particular scenario. I mean, and, and it's really sad because it's, it's you see it amongst the citizens of the state reflecting the vision of of, of their politicians. And so what would you do differently if you were in charge? And uh, how would you garner support from the people who are most recalcitrant? You know, it, it's kind of a little bit like what I'm already doing. You know, it, it's being transparent, telling the people the information, look, knowledge is power. And, and how can somebody make a conscious decision about what to do for their families and their community when they don't know what's happening in their community? We still today, I don't know how many cases are in Leon County. I know how many cases are throughout the entire state. I know that we are a hotbed for every in every county. Um, so giving information uh, and doing exactly what I did from the get-go, making sure that I'm leading by example. I, I rolled up my sleeve and I got the shot in public um, and encouraging others to do so. We have done PSAs on Fox uh, to encourage people who watch Fox News. And I would have not ever politicized the pandemic. 
And, and that's what this governor did. This governor didn't allow, even during last year, conflicting opinions in the room to have a conversation about what to do next. It was his way or the highway. And so those who were concerned, who may have been on the other side of the political spectrum of him, including me, were not allowed to even be in a room to kind of debate the science or debate what should be next in the state. So I would have made sure that this was done in a cohesive manner, bringing everybody to the table. That means people from the other party. You know, there's no reason why you didn't have the cabinet meeting on a consistent basis, that you have two U.S. senators. We have, you know, members of Congress. He didn't talk to our members of our congressional delegation who were going to Washington, D.C. to help fight for resources and funding to bring down to the state. He didn't have conversations with our U.S. senators. He didn't have conversations with the mayors, the mayors who were on the front line of these battles last year. So I would have done this very different transparent, bringing people together, leading by example, and making this not a political conversation. This had to be that we were all in this together and pulling people in. Like, you know, I was, I talked to all the time, the mayor down in, in Hialeah, who is, you know, a, a conservative Republican. The governor has never called him and talked to him and about what to do with testing and the vaccine. And, and so it's a matter of bringing everybody together, showing leadership on both sides of the aisle, saying, look, the only way to get through this is together. And I certainly would not have had closed door meetings with people that are saying, you know, that wearing a mask is equivalent to child abuse. That is what some of his experts are saying. And, and so he's spewing misinformation, which is only compounded the problem that's happening in our state. Even this week alone, you know, the governor has gone out and said the vaccines, you know, they may not work that well on the transmission and slowing the spread, but this antibody, you know, this is going to be our lifesaver. Well, I'm sorry, but preventative medicine is always the, the best bet, um, no matter what. That's why we all take vitamins. That's why we you know, work out, try to eat healthy to prevent ourselves from getting sick and to prevent ourselves from going into the hospital with other types of diseases. And so preventative medicine, you can ask any medical doctor, any insurance company will tell you that that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so he's spewing misinformation and again, has, has put up his hand saying, just we're going to have to live with this. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not going to live with this because they're going to die. And, and this is a misrepresentation of the facts that this governor is spewing. Um, so I would have done a lot of things differently and arming um, our teachers, our, our school boards, our local officials, our businesses um, with the tools to be able to protect, the, again, their consumers, protect their communities and, and do this together. Uh, you're really outspoken in social media. And how has Twitter and other devices transformed your ability to communicate with the public? You know, it, it's been one of our avenues, you know, which is also why, though, we're doing press conferences every day, because we know that, you know, we, we live in, in a very small world on Twitter. You know, I, I have 212,000 followers on a state of 22 million. So I know certainly that, that Twitter and social media doesn't hit everybody. But what it does is also when I send out a message um, local news and others um, then take the message and then puts it into whether it's local newspapers or retweets them themselves. So it's given us an opportunity to, to be fast on getting information out, but we also really recognize that it doesn't hit everybody. Not everybody's on social media. My mother is not on Twitter. <laughs> you know, my grandmother is not on Facebook or Twitter. You know, so how do I get the information out to my grandmother's community? And, and that's making sure that we're using other mediums like 
um, you know, TV and news reporters in our press conference to try to hit as many people as possible, not just those that are in the social media world. Okay, so if people wanted to follow you on social media, where would they look? Well, first of all, um, as we know, I am on Facebook. So just uh, Google Nikki Freed on on Facebook and you will see that on there. And then when it comes uh, to my Twitter, um, it's at Nikki Freed. So it's at N-I-K-K-I-F-R-I-E-D. And that's on my my political side. So that's not my commissioner one, um, but that's more from the political side. And of course, uh, if you go to my website, NikkiFreed.com on the political side, again, that's my campaign website. Uh, you'll also have all of the links to all of our social media uh, to follow us on on the political side. Well, Commissioner Freed, thank you for your time today. And please, please, please stay tough in the COVID arena. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin, and a lot of people ask how they can help the Talking Biotech podcast. Well, the best thing you can do, spread the word with simple steps that increase the listenership. Now, remember, my goal is simple, to provide good information from experts to help others navigate the massive misinformation and disinformation morass that's permeating social media and sometimes traditional media, too. So what can you do? Well, write reviews. Write reviews wherever you consume podcast media. Good reviews, and lots of them, influence someone else's decision to listen or subscribe to a given podcast. Powerful stuff. Share the weekly podcast through your social media streams. Your Twitter, Facebook, whatever. It makes a huge difference. And it's so simple. Or if you can, support the podcast with a donation on Patreon. There's been quite a few $1 and $5 donors lately, and and that's huge. Every cent goes into boosting social media in an attempt to cast a net to find new listeners. So it allows me to share the podcast with more people. So whatever you do, your efforts are much appreciated. Again, my interest is to produce exceptional media with compelling guests that fortify your ability to engage conversations at home or in social media. I want to help provide you with the content and communication strategies to combat false information, as well as share these beautiful stories of science and technology. Plus, the guests are super interesting, too. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I appreciate it a lot. Our next guest is a repeat guest. It's Brady Holmer. Brady's a PhD student in the Department of Physiology and Kinesiology. Uh, sorry, what, what is the department? Applied Physiology ah, and Kinesiology. Applied <laughs> Physiology and Kinesiology, not just the other kind. Uh, so uh, Brady is also an avid science communicator with a podcast and some writing uh, that will give you an address to find at the end of the segment. But uh, welcome back, Brady. Good to talk to you. Dr. Folte, it's great to be be back on Talking Biotech, and I'm excited to chat about some topics today. Yeah, so th- there's a couple of reasons I wanted to have you on. One is to really kind of hold you up as an example of what everybody should be doing in grad school uh, or in their postdoctoral time to build their brand and show the breadth of what they do in terms of communication. So, you know, you're an all-star in this area and I really appreciate your work. But I wanted to bring you on today because of your efforts in reporting 
on long COVID. Now, a lot of people have been speaking about COVID. We discuss, uh, you know, the disease. We discuss the vaccines. But the part that the public fails to really understand are the residual effects that are potentially there in terms of cognitive effects. And it really hit home with me because of a friend's wife who was a very high-functioning person who had developed a bit of a decline uh, after experiencing COVID, uh, relatively symptom-free. So I wanted to bring this to light a little bit more for people who uh, communicate with others about COVID, understanding that this isn't something that you can just you know, uh, dismiss as, as a non-issue. So that, that's why I have you on today. So could you take a minute in the beginning here and define what long COVID is and what's the current uh, evidence that there are associated pathologies? Yeah, definitely. So it's very interesting, as you mentioned, this long COVID, because, you know, now on top of the disease of COVID-19 that we are still still battling and which seems to be sort of kind of rebounding, we have this new kind of long COVID, which doesn't really have a specific clinical diagnosis right now. It sort of refers to this constellation of symptoms that seem to persist in people who have contracted SARS-CoV-2. And what makes it unique from COVID-19 is that these symptoms seem to last beyond the acute and the subacute phases of the disease and into what is known as the, the early chronic phase. So seemingly after all COVID-19 symptoms have resolved, people have left the hospital, they're no longer on a ventilator, they still seem to be suffering these different symptoms. And now there are many symptoms that are kind of being reported now. Um, You mentioned cognitive outcomes, which we're going to discuss soon, but I particularly got interested in kind of looking at long COVID from the cardiovascular effects that have been reported. You know, COVID is traditionally thought of as a respiratory disease, but many of the long COVID symptoms, um, including sort of heart inflammation, uh, cardiomyopathies, and these vascular dysfunction type symptoms are also being reported. That's kind of where I'm tackling it, if that's my research uh, specialty. Well, I'm not tackling it, but that's where I'm sort of looking and kind of interested in the literature. But um, yeah, just these symptoms that people are reporting, like the kind of case that you said one of your friends was reporting some sort of brain fog, but just all these different symptoms that are appearing and popping up in people who have seemingly shed the disease and are no longer um, infected with COVID-19 is sort of what this long COVID is being described as and characterized as. But again, I think it's key to note that it's not really a clinical diagnosis where we can say, oh, these, these key symptoms, it's just, it's a bunch of different things that people are reporting. Yeah, so, and I neglected to mention that your specialty is in cardiac physiology and uh, cardiac tissues are loaded with ACE2 receptors. So they are a prime target for for SARS-CoV-2, correct? Indeed, yes. Uh, Cardiac tissue contains many ACE2 receptors, endothelial and like vascular smooth muscle, tons of ACE2 receptors. And that's primarily why the cardiovascular system is so susceptible to the effects of of COVID-19. So in your Medium article recently, you discuss an article, a research article that was presented. And tell me a little bit about that article and the hypothesis they were chasing. Yeah, so the the title of the article, it was Cognitive Deficits in People Who Have Recovered from COVID-19. It was published in the journal um, eClinical Medicine, and that's kind of an offshoot, one of the 
articles in the Lancet branch of sort of journals. And so the, the aim of the study, it was basically to determine whether people who have been infected with COVID-19 would demonstrate any cognitive deficits compared to individuals who had never contracted the virus. Um, they hypothesized that those who had recovered, so previously infected people who no longer had the disease, would show signs of cognitive deficits on certain tests that related to uh, attention, memory, problem solving, emotional processing, all these different cognitive outcomes. And how they went about investigating these aims, um, essentially, so there was this study that began just as um, a non-COVID related study. It was called the Great British Intelligence Test. Now, this was like implemented as some citizen science project that they collaborated with BBC Horizon. So this study was conducted in Britain over in the, the UK. Um, and so they basically were just asking people to take this test. They could sort of assess what their cognitive strengths were as well as gather all this data. Again, as part of like this citizen science large scale study. And then in light of COVID-19, they added questions pertaining to disease status, disease severity, in order to gather questions pertaining uh, to the hypotheses and the aims of this particular study. So it didn't really begin as a COVID-19 study, but once COVID hit, they decided to sort of implement these questions at the end that people could answer, and then hence the aim of this study to sort of associate or search for an association between COVID-19 and the, the cognitive outcomes that were in this study. Okay, so when you're analyzing cognitive outcomes, it can be rather challenging because there's so many other confounding factors. You have all kinds of bias that, you know, I was sick with this thing that, you know, allegedly gives brain fog and, hey, I'm having trouble remembering. How do you control for that? And how do you, you know, clean up all of those interesting confounding factors? Yeah. So, you know, of course, one of the many things, one of the first things that you can do, which most studies do that are looking for associations is just control for variables like socioeconomic status, age, gender, sex, ethnicity, all of those kind of things, which this study did. Um, but a very important thing that this study did to control for that was control for what they call pre-morbid differences in cognitive performance. So that's basically just saying, how do we know that people who became infected with COVID-19 weren't already cognitively impaired at baseline compared to those who never got infected? So, you know, there could be many things that affect one's susceptibility to being infected um, but they controlled for this just by running certain linear models. And basically they determined in this study that, you know, those, those who um, eventually or those who were infected had no greater chance at baseline of becoming or they had no lower cognitive uh, function at baseline compared to those who eventually didn't end up getting infected. And in fact, they actually had a greater um, baseline score potentially versus those who had never been infected. So we can't say that the results were just due to the fact that these people who eventually got COVID had lower cognitive scores at baseline. I see. And that's really important because that would be a tremendous confounding factor. So what did they find when you looked at the data from those that were exposed and recovered versus those that never were exposed to the virus? I mean, then how did they, did that really track with the severity of the infection? So their, their primary finding was that there was a significant effect of COVID-19 infection on cognitive performance. And what's maybe even more interesting in that is that the um, increasing levels of underperformance were found 
compared to controls in these uh, deficits increase depending on the level of the medical assistance received and the severity of the disease. So it was a scaled reduction in cognitive performance based on one, whether you infected or not. And then as the infection severity increased, there were increasing levels of cognitive deficit. And so for instance, those who had been hospitalized with the disease versus those who were not hospitalized with the disease showed um, worse cognitive performance. And then furthermore, say among those who were hospitalized, being put on a ventilator was associated with worse cognitive scores compared to not being put on a ventilator. And then those who um, reported suspectedly having the disease but who remained at home they uh, still showed significant performance deficits, but those were less than the people who had been hospitalized. So again, it seems that if you were hospitalized, you were worse than somebody who was not. If you were put on a ventilator, you were worse than somebody who was not. So again, just this scaled decrease in cognitive performance, which is super interesting, indicating that you know the worse your COVID was, the worse your cognitive, um, cognitive outcomes might be. And then a final thing to note there was that there was a significantly greater performance decrease in the people with a positive biological test. So basically in those who had confirmed COVID-19 versus those who did not have a confirmed positive test. So that may just suggest that, you know, people took this test, they were able to report whether they suspected if they had COVID-19. And so this sort of eliminates the suspected cases who may have been sort of a, a false positive versus those who were actually confirmed and that had COVID-19. Well, that's really important. But are there any controls or any understanding if just simply being on a ventilator or being at oxygen debt for a significant time, having very low saturation levels, that that could impair the function regardless of whether it was COVID or any other uh, any other inducer? Yeah, I'm I'm sure. And so just in general, you know, they don't they don't really go deep into the mechanisms in this article, but you know, that brings up a good point in terms of, you know, just hypoxia, um, experiencing that low oxygen, I think that, you know, that independently of, you know, COVID nineteen would um would have negative effects on cognitive performance, you know, possibly a, a loss of neuronal tissue or, you know, brain cell death and things like that. But that's a, that's a very interesting mechanism. And I think that in this study, sort of, they propose future directions of this work, which I think will be fascinating should it come out in terms of, oh, can we eventually get like brain imaging studies and look at things like, uh, what were the effects of being put on a ventilator? Did that alter brain structure or things like that? So we can really get sort of imaging data versus just this objective cognitive data. Um, I think if we are able to get those imaging data soon that uh, from people who are investigating these issues, that will be some, some fascinating data to see. So can you help me put this together, though? I know you mentioned this is a spectrum of, of things that happen. Can you make it practical? And can you maybe help me put an idea about what does a cognitive decline look like in terms of something like IQ or something that we could relate to rather than, you know, just the kind of uh, general term of fog. Yeah, yeah, they do. They put it in perspective nicely sort of at the end of the article in terms of like, oh, what do these deficits actually mean? And so the, um, the deficit associated with COVID-19 was around uh, a half of a standard deviation below the mean. And they discuss how this is, quote, not insubstantial. And it would be similar to the decline in cognitive performance seen in this study cohort that they uh, between 20 and 70. 
So basically, you know, they're saying COVID is causing a level of cognitive decline similar to that of a couple or even more than a couple decades of aging, which is pretty uh, remarkable and frightening. And then the decline was also comparable to that reported among participants in this study who had suffered a stroke and even in those reporting learning disabilities. And then in the scope of IQ, um, the COVID-related decline in this study equates to about a reduction of seven IQ points. So also very interesting, but they, they do stress in the study that the tests that they administered were not what you would classically think of as an IQ test, but sort of when they put it in that perspective, similar to a reduction of about seven IQ points. So not, not an insignificant reduction there. Well, it's really important, especially because we're just starting to unravel this. And do you have any idea of the incidence of long COVID? I mean, how many people actually, or what proportion of the infections actually experience these more chronic manifestations? Yeah, so I think that um, in terms of, you know, how many are experiencing it, I don't know if that's necessarily was touched upon in the article. But so interestingly, there was, um, there's another article that I kind of can bring up here that was just published really recently talking about, um, it's the title of it's actually more than 50 long-term effects of COVID-19, um, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And so they kind of show that um, about 80% of people with SARS-CoV-2 developed one or more of these long-term symptoms. So it seems, uh, you know, a very, very high proportion are developing some of these long-term symptoms. Long-term in this study is defined as 14 to 110 days post-viral infection. But again, you know, long COVID might, um, might actually extend sort of well beyond that. And again, I'll just kind of bring up a couple things from that study. So they showed that the five most common symptoms there include things like fatigue, headache, attention disorder, hair loss, and dyspnea, or kind of just uh, shortness of breath. So very interesting data there. And they, you know, are short, sort of showing that these long COVID symptoms, as you mentioned, maybe may be pretty prevalent in up to 80% of people. And that was another meta-analysis. So it included a pretty decent, decent number of participants, I think somewhere maybe around, uh, you know, 20, 30,000 or more. So, um, yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, you know, this, as we always say, you know, that we're building the plane as we're flying it. And <laughs> I'm afraid that a lot of the long-term effects of this are still emerging and the patterns are, are really being downplayed by many who still kind of view this as just something that you go through and whether you like it or not. But what does the future of the research look like? And, and what's going on right now with respect to other avenues of study in long COVID? I think that the future of research, you know, for one, will just involve more studies being published. I mean, I think that these long COVID symptoms, a lot of them could be anecdotal, you know, going back to your friend who was reporting brain fog type symptoms, a lot of them can be anecdotal. So I think, you know, for one, just where the research here is going to emerge is getting getting more and more data, analyzing large data sets, and then getting more sort of in-depth data like the imaging data that I mentioned earlier, you know, cardiovascular imaging or brain imaging data, the studies showing kind of structural and functional changes in, you know, actual physiology compared to just reports of brain fog or other self-reported data. So I think that will be a very interesting area of research. And then for me, kind of an exciting area of research is developing I guess we would call it rehab or rehabilitation-like interventions because if long COVID is a thing and 
the cognitive and cardiovascular pathology is as um, detrimental and as prevalent as some of these studies may suggest. I think that there exists a very, very um, large opportunity to intervene in ways that may include exercise and dietary intervention. So for instance, if we just take it from a cardiovascular perspective, um, COVID-19, some of the symptoms of long COVID might involve vascular dysfunction. Well, my, our lab, the lab I work in and others, you know, we know that exercise, aerobic exercise can improve vascular function. So if these people are experiencing vascular dysfunction that might be similar to aging or other disease states, can we improve that just by having them undergo exercise training? I think that's a very, very uh, possible route that, that we can go um, in terms of improving just overall heart health as well. So we can think of, you know, the vasculature or the heart. Um, so just exercise interventions and rehabbing people, getting them back to health um, will be a very important step in this, um, as well as strength training. You know, COVID-19, even in people who weren't infected, I think, um, was associated with sort of a, a drastic decline in physical activity among everybody, <laughs> I think, in the United States. So I think in terms of that, we just need to get our nation back to health, regardless of uh, whether people who have long COVID or not. But going back to the long COVID, I just think rehab, you know, strategies, anything that's going to improve health, you know, can we look at diet? How can that improve certain risk factors that may be um, exacerbated by long COVID? Um, can we use things like sauna maybe if people can't exercise? There's just all these different avenues. Um, and, you know, I'm speaking of sort of these non, non-medication, non-pharmacological strategies, just because that's sort of my main area of interest in research. But I think that exercise will be a huge thing in terms of nursing people with long COVID back to health, getting them back to normal. I think that's going to be really, really key. Well, Brady Homer, thank you so much for your time on this. I really appreciate uh, your in-depth discussion of long COVID that really will help all of us be better communicators about what it is and watch for it, as well as really add it to the risks that will come from an infection and encourage more people maybe to get vaccinated. So thank you for your time today. Yeah, definitely, Dr. Folta. I, uh, I appreciate it coming on and talking about it. It's a, It's an area of increasing interest for me, and I think it's always going to be relevant, at least in the coming in the coming years. So I'm happy to come on and talk about it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And if people want to hear more of Brady Homer, can you tell them where to find your podcast and where they can read your work? Sure thing. So all of my work, whether that's kind of scientific publications or just my lay, lay publications blog posts, you can go to bradyholmer.com. That's just sort of my website where I have my cachet of whatever, whatever work that I put out. And then my podcast that I host is called Science and Chill. You can find that on my website, but you can also find it on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Amazon Podcasts apparently exists now and it's on there. But wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find it. Um, so Science and Chill, Dr. Folta was on. So all of you can go and listen to that episode if you'd like. But um, a lot of range of different topics for people who are interested in things regarding health, science, exercise, diets, etc. So feel free to check that out. Subscribe if you, uh, if you enjoy. Yeah, very good. And it's not a fly-by-night podcast either. You're like at episode 5,000 now, or where are you? <laughs> I wish uh, thirty six, but you know we'll be at five thousand. We'll be at five thousand soon. Soon yeah. enough, <laughs> sometime around twenty fifty three. Exactly. Exactly. Exponential growth. 
Yeah, well, if you do one every day, you get there faster, I guess. But that's a well, thank you very much for joining me. And, you know, to all, everyone listening, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write reviews on iTunes or any place where you consume podcast media. If you really uh, want to share a little love over on Patreon, we've had a number of $5 donors in the last few weeks, which means we can boost posts in social media and grow this audience, which is really the main goal and what your finances help us do. Help me do. This is just me. <laughs> I always say us like it's a big production, right? Well, thank you the very royal, much. For, the royal we. <laughs> the royal The royal we. <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, I do myself an incredible disservice because people don't realize that I do the production and the website and all the social media. And the funny part is, is that um, when I had somebody do the production, like I paid somebody to do it for a while, and it was it was awful. So, <laughs> so I do it myself better. Um, but thank you very much for listening to the self-produced, self-promoted podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.